Our Sunday morning Bible readings are going through John's Gospel just at the moment, and I wonder if you can turn up page 1065 in the Pew Bibles, uh, or John chapter 2, verse 23. Last week we were looking at John chapter 2, the miracle that began Jesus' public ministry, the turning of the water into gallons and gallons of wine. And we didn't look last week um, at the second half of chapter 2, at Jesus going to Jerusalem and uh, clearing out the temple of all the money sellers. And we're going to pick up the story there at the end of the chapter in verse 23 of chapter 2, and we'll be reading through to verse 21 of chapter 3. So John chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. Let's hear God's word. Now, while he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, named Nicodemus, a man, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless He is born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. And this is God's word. Well, can I invite you to turn to our second scripture reading this morning. Uh, You can find it in Ezekiel chapter uh, 33, I thought, hang on, 36, apologies, chapter 36, uh, page 867 in the Pew Bibles. And we're going to begin right at the bottom of that page, verse 22 on the right-hand side. So Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Let's hear God's word. Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You will live in the land I gave your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness I will call for the corn and make it plentiful and will not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. Then you will remember your evil ways and your wicked deeds and you will loathe yourselves for your sins and detestable practices. I want you to know that I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Sovereign Lord. Be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, O house of Israel. And this is God's word. Well, it was great to have a new start taking place right before our eyes this morning, wasn't it? As we welcomed Zara Grace into our church family by baptising her with water. There's a lot of new starts at this time of year, generally, aren't there? We often hope that a new year will be a new beginning. New year new beginning. 
New beginning for our church family in terms of the, the new building beginning uh, outside as we just heard about. And last week we began our new year as a church family by seeing how Jesus came to bring a new start. Uh, we saw that Jesus attends this wedding where the wine runs out. Disaster! But Jesus miraculously produces gallons and gallons and gallons of the finest wine. And that's not just a party trick. That is a sign, a, a pointer, a foretaste to who Jesus is and what he comes to do. It's a foretaste of life in the kingdom of God. A, a picture of how life is meant to be lived forever. Can you imagine it? Gallons and gallons of the finest wine. A picture of what eternal life is all about. So Jesus, God in the flesh, comes to bring this genuinely new start, a new creation, eternal life. Well, over the next three weeks, uh, our focus is going to be on three conversations. And these conversations are all about how to be part of this genuinely new start that Jesus comes to bring. And this week, we're going to meet a man who doesn't get it. Now, this conversation takes place when Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover festival, chapter 2, verse 23. He's doing many miracles, we're told, and people start to believe in him. But strangely, John tells us that although people believed in Jesus, Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't really believe in their new starts. He didn't trust their professions of faith. Why not? Isn't that an odd thing for John to tell us about? I've been kind of puzzling over that. Why doesn't Jesus trust these people's profession of faith? It seems to be working perfectly. Jesus does signs, people believe in his name, but Jesus doesn't trust them. Why not? Well, verse 25 gives us a clue. He didn't trust them because Jesus knew what was in a man. Or you could equally say what was in a human being. What was in a man? What does that mean? It's quite cryptic, isn't it? What does it mean that Jesus knew what was in a person, in a human being? Is Jesus saying that perhaps we could be like that? Could we be people who are trying to have a new start with Jesus, believing in him, and actually he doesn't trust us? It's quite scary, actually, isn't it? What does this mean, to believe in Jesus without Jesus believing in us? Well, John, fortunately, doesn't leave us guessing. He goes on to introduce us to a man, a human being named Nicodemus. He's somebody who has seen the signs, and he believes something about Jesus, and now he's come to tell Jesus what he believes about him. But it's important to see that this is no ordinary man. He's actually a best-case scenario. He's a Pharisee. And that means he's one of the most morally upright people in his society. He's serious, uh, devout, uh, disciplined man. He's also a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish ruling council. So he's been a man who's been given great responsibility by his peers. And later on, we're told that he is the teacher of Israel. So this is actually the premier theologian of his day. So if we were thinking of a, a kind of a current example of somebody like Nicodemus, you wouldn't be far off thinking of somebody like um, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. 
Uh, he's somebody who you can see is very sincere, can't you, if, you, if you've ever seen him on TV. Clearly takes his faith very seriously. Uh, he's somebody who was entrusted with the top responsibility in his church to be the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he is still a top theologian. People are reading his books still all the time and discussing what he writes. And this is the sort of person Nicodemus is. The best of the best. Serious, devout, responsible, really top draw theologian. If anybody is going to be in God's kingdom, it's going to be Nicodemus. So watch as Nicodemus brings his verdict, his confession of faith. Have a look at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For nobody could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. He's impressed, isn't he, Nicodemus with Jesus? And he could hardly fail to be. Jesus has been doing these miraculous signs. It's obvious that God is empowering Jesus. And so Nicodemus has come to have a conversation with this great teacher who's been sent by God. It's a conversation, if you like, between two great theologians. Nicodemus is expecting a kind of mutual respect as they discourse about the kingdom of God. But did you notice as the conversation goes on, Nicodemus' comments get shorter and shorter and shorter. And Jesus' replies get longer and longer and longer and more and more black and white. It becomes clear that actually Nicodemus doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. And we're left simply listening to Jesus. And if we want to be part of Jesus' new start, the new beginning that he comes to bring, this conversation shows us very clearly that we have three urgent needs. Have a look. Straight away, Jesus firstly stuns Nicodemus. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now here's a puzzle for you. Why does uh, Nicodemus say, I believe that you've come from God, brilliant, fantastic, and Jesus says this, I tell you, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. What does, Jesus, what does Nicodemus say that's so wrong that it provokes this comment from Jesus? Well, I think the answer is that in Nicodemus' considered theological judgment, the signs that Jesus has been doing show that Jesus has been sent by God as a teacher. A new Moses, or we might say a new Muhammad, a, a, a prophet, the greatest prophet perhaps, but at the end of the day, simply a man inspired, empowered by God. And the fact that this devout, responsible, theologically sharp teacher of Israel has not been able to penetrate into who Jesus really is means there's actually no hope for any of us. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. We won't be able to be part of God's new start unless we recognize, unless we are able to penetrate and understand who Jesus really is. And Jesus says we won't be able to do that unless we have a kind of a second birth. 
But what is this second birth? What does that mean, Jesus? Nicodemus asks it very skeptically. Verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. In reply, Jesus points us back. He points Nicodemus back to the Old Testament promises. Jesus isn't talking about a, a physical birth. He's talking about the spiritual birth that was promised in passages like Ezekiel that we just read, where God promises to, to take away our sins by, as though he's washing clean water on us to purify us and to change us from the inside, to take away our hard hearts and give us soft, living hearts as he puts his Holy Spirit within us to make us love God and want to do what he says. The point is this. If we are going to be part of God's new kingdom, it requires nothing less than a direct intervention from God the Holy Spirit himself inside of us. This is a change so dramatic that it can be called a new birth. So this is the first thing that we urgently need if we want to be part of Jesus' new start. We need a new start on the inside. Jesus knows what is in this man, Nicodemus. He knows what is in all men, all women, all people. He knows that inside we're actually wrecks. Inside, we're not going to be able to do it by ourselves. We're not going to be able to understand who Jesus is. We're not going to be able to recognize his true identity unless we're born again. Flesh, verse 6, gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Uh, If I could play any sport, I think I would probably choose to be a batsman for England. Um, I've always admired batsmen, the way they kind of come out and they face all these balls, uh, balls being hurled down at them, and they sort of have to stand their ground for a while. And then eventually, if they do it for long enough, they start to get the upper hand and they start scoring runs and the, the lovely cover drives come out. And um, you could imagine that maybe England are going through one of their periodic kind of blips and they're looking for some new uh, top three batsmen. And uh, I think, well, you know, I've always fancied that. I'll go and give that a try. So you can imagine me putting the pads on, and I more or less look the part as I come out to the kind of the bowling machine. And I'm standing there, take my guard, and the first ball comes down, and I'm skittled. Okay, try again. Second ball comes back, swing and a miss, and I'm stumped uh, immediately. And it it really doesn't take very long before you work out that uh, I'm probably not going to be good enough. And I'm afraid uh, it wouldn't take a, a bowling machine to prove that. Any village bowler would show that I just don't have Sadly, the hand-eye coordination for any level of batting in cricket, unfortunately. Um, but you can imagine me afterwards speaking to the coach and saying, listen, could, could we work on this? You know, give me some of your top tuition. And, we'll, you know, I'll practice my drives, practice my taking guard. And the coach grabs me by the shoulder and he says, listen, Sam, if you are going to play as a batsman for England, you need to be born again. You need to literally go back, get new DNA, get a new life experience. Everything needs to be different. Sam, it is just not going to be happen. It's just not going to happen. Well, Jesus is saying that about every one of us. 
in spiritual terms. We will not be able to be part of his new start unless we believe in him. And Jesus says we will not be able to believe in him unless we have a second birth. We're that messed up, friends, naturally. We're that broken. We need a new start inside us. No matter how much we might look the part, no matter how much, like Nicodemus, we might be respectable, very sincere, academically well-qualified, Jesus says that human nature is, in fact, a spiritual dead end. We're in a rut that we are not going to get out of. Another metaphor, we're spiritually lifeless. And this is helpful, I think, isn't it? It's now very clear what kind of a new start we need if we're going to be part of Jesus' kingdom. As great as it is to commit to doing a couch to 5K or a New Testament read-through this year or a new building project, these are not the kind of changes that are going to be deep enough to make a real spiritual difference. The new start that Jesus is looking for looks much more like this. A baptism. Something being done to us from outside of us that we cannot do ourselves. Looks much more like that than a New Year's resolution. Well, whatever we make of this, we have to at least say Jesus has been very clear with us, hasn't he? He's been very honest about what he thinks. And so he says to every religious, social, intellectual leader, you must be born again. To every child coming into the world, no matter how beautiful, no matter how healthy, no matter how much potential, he says to them, you must be born again. To every preacher who preaches about the need for new birth, you must be born again. We need a spiritual intervention from beyond us, from outside of us, from heaven itself. And so Nicodemus says over the page, verse 9, how can this be? How is this going to happen, Jesus? And Jesus cannot believe he doesn't know, verse 10. You're Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things. Jesus is not getting very far with this new birth analogy, so he moves to a more direct approach. He says to Nicodemus, in verse 11, verse 12, that he's not just any old teacher. He doesn't speak of what he's learned, but what he's seen. Where has he seen it? Well, verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. We need to learn, we need to be taught, we need to be shown spiritual things by the Son of Man who comes down from heaven. And we need to recognize that our teacher is not just another teacher, but the Son who comes down from heaven. If we want to be part of Jesus' new start, the second urgent thing that we need is we need the Son to come down from heaven. Now, to explain this, Jesus switches to another Old Testament reference. We'll look at it briefly, because I think it does help to just clarify what Jesus is talking about. Have a look at verse 14. Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, this story about snakes in the desert would have been very familiar to Nicodemus. 
You can actually imagine Nicodemus repeating it back to Jesus as Jesus mentions it. Yes, our our fathers rebelled against Moses and against God. And so they received God's just punishment. He allowed deadly snakes to come into their camp. And with people perishing all around him, Moses couldn't do anything about it. But God had mercy. And he provided a remedy. He told his servant Moses to lift up a pole with a bronze snake on top of it. Anyone who looked at that snake on the pole would be healed from the snake bite and live. Right, says Jesus, that's the story. And Jesus says, just as Israel was infected by snakes in the desert, so we have been infected by sin. It's like poison flowing through our bloodstreams. It pollutes us and it will kill us. But there's a remedy. Because when Moses lifted up that snake on a pole, surrounded by perishing people, he was actually pointing forwards to the the coming of another one, this son from heaven, the son of God himself, who would come in the likeness of our sinful flesh to be the perfect son of man, the perfect human being, who would indeed be lifted up upon the cross to be condemned for our rebellion, to take away our sin, to give us the Holy Spirit, so that everyone who looks at him, even though we're perishing, will be able to live. This world, Jesus says, is poisoned by sin. We're spiritually dead, perishing. And if we want to have a genuine new start this year, we need a new start inside us, taking away our sin, giving us power to live for God. And we need the Son to come from heaven to do that for us. But thirdly, there's a third urgent need. And it comes in this final section that begins with the famous uh, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's a wonderful verse that probably many of us will see on the backs of car windscreens or on fridge magnets. It's, I think, probably the most popular verse it regularly polls as in the whole Bible. It's a wonderful verse. But it's not just a soppy verse about how everyone's going to get eternal life because God is really nice. This verse is very clear that it's whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus goes on to talk about that more in verse 18. He says, whoever believes in him, in the Son of Man, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus is saying that in a world that is perishing, in a world in which we stand condemned already, we need to respond to the Son of God coming into our world by putting our faith in him. We need to decide, thirdly, to come into the light If we're going to be part of Jesus' new start, we need to decide to step into the light. 
Now, perhaps that sounds very easy. I don't know. But I suspect many of us this morning won't have found these things easy to hear. Are we really that spiritually dead? Why, why can't we believe in Jesus without a new birth? Why do we baptize children before they become part of the church rather than just letting them all in? Well, Jesus explains uh, as he gives his own theological judgment. This is what's really been happening in this conversation, Jesus says. Have a look, verse 19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Did you, do you see who he's talking about here? He's talking about Nicodemus. We've had G Nicodemus' verdict on, Nicode on Jesus right at the start. And now Jesus is giving his verdict on Nicodemus. Jesus is not just a teacher sent from God. He is the true light who's come into the world. And Nicodemus has, in some ways, come to the light. He's come to see Jesus. But he's chosen to do that under the cover of darkness. Remember, we're told that he came at night. Why did he come at night? Because he doesn't really want to come to the light, but because he still wants to hide. And his growing silence, his, his questions that show his doubt, suggest that shortly he's simply going to disappear back into the darkness. He hasn't really come to find the true light. It is very tempting, very tempting, to want to hide in the darkness rather than come to the light. In fact, it's our natural human response. This is our problem. This is why we need a new birth. Why? Why? Let's, let's pause on that and just press into that a little bit further. Why is that? Why do we fear the light? Well, let's ask Nicodemus. Nicodemus, why don't you come into the light? You've seen the signs. Why are you afraid of making the, recognizing the fact that Jesus is not just a man, but God in the flesh? Well, I think if he's honest with himself, Nicodemus would say that these signs have shown a, a bigger glory than he's really prepared to deal with. These signs are not showing the glory of a God-empowered man, but the glory of God in the flesh. And if Nicodemus is honest, I think he'd say, it just seems quite dangerous to give myself up to this bigger spiritual reality. Especially one that, let's be honest, seems so negative about human life in its ordinary forms. A spiritual reality that says we need a new birth. And so this is why Jesus wants to put things so starkly. Because we're scared. And so he says to Nicodemus, and he says to us, the light is not here to harm us. Verse 17, have a look with me. Jesus says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through 
him. Jesus, God really didn't need to send his son into the world to condemn us. We're already condemned. We've already rebelled against God. We're already broken. God sent his son into the world because he wants to heal us. So don't hide in the darkness, Nicodemus, worrying about what might be exposed. Don't try to minimize who Jesus is so that you can stay secure in your flesh, gives birth to flesh, respectable kind of existence. Come into the light because, verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, he says to us, I am living proof of God's love for you. If God had a limited love, he could have very easily sent a human being, he could have sent an angel, but he chose to give up his one and only son. The true meaning of John 3.16 is that the more we give ourselves up and open ourselves up to this massive spiritual reality that God the Son has come into the world, the more we will see how enormous God's love is. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son, to make a wretch his treasure. Jesus says to Nicodemus, and he says to us, if you see who I truly am, you will be born again. You will stop trying to fix things yourselves. You will stop hiding away in the darkness. You will want to step into the light. And through the Spirit, you will then know me as the eternal love of the Father. And that will be eternal life. Friends, our humanity is stuck in a rut. It's the end. But wonderfully, it's also the beginning of a genuinely new start with God, our Saviour. Well, if this is bothering you, if you're still feeling the urge to stay hiding away in the darkness, then please, please come back over the next couple of weeks as we have more conversations that will make this clearer and we'll also see some happier endings. Uh, So do come back and join us for those as we try to understand this more. But as we leave Nicodemus now to fade into the darkness, let's remember that this morning we really do have the opportunity for a genuinely new start symbolised by baptism that can take place inside of us if we'll listen to Jesus. We needed God to send his son to do this for us, to baptise us with the Spirit, and he has. And so I hope you'll join me in believing in the name of his one and only son, and through him and with him be praise and authority to the Father with the Holy Spirit, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, Jesus, 
has a way of upsetting us, of turning our ideas upside down and provoking us more than we could think. But Lord, we thank you that at the same time as he does that, he comes as your gift to us, your very own son, come to light up our darkness, come to make a way home, come to heal us, to renew us from the inside and to make us your people. So, Father, we pray that we might commit ourselves to you. For any here who have not done that, who have until now been hiding in the darkness, we pray that we might recognize, perhaps for the first time, the true light and who he is and come and embrace him as our saviour. And for those of us for whom this is old and we've done this before and we've done it again, Lord, we pray that you would refresh our view of the power of Jesus, of our need for Jesus, and for your love shown to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. For we pray in his name. Amen.